Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will find there a tab that says articles. You will discover there some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. I'm not a regular blogger, but when things pop up on my radar that I feel I would like to address in a thoughtful way, I will sometimes produce a longer article, so I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 2. We've come to verse 5. The writer says, For he, God, did not subject to the angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, and now he goes to Psalm 8. What is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man, that thou, God, art concerned about him? Thou, God, hast made him man for a little while, lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, under man's. For, the writer explains, in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing, That is not subject to him. We'll stop right there. Beginning in chapter 2, we have the first of several warning passages. The writer says, if we could very loosely paraphrase, writing to these Hebrew Christians, If you folk think it is a deadly thing to ignore the revelation brought to us through the mediation of angels when Moses received the law, then let me advise you, you had better give even more attention to the revelation brought to us in Jesus Christ. And they were getting a little loosey-goosey on that. He warns them that nothing could be more lethal than to ignore the revelation of the Son of God himself, who came in the flesh. But right there, speaking of the Son of God who came in the flesh, that is, in a full complex of humanity, right there was an obstacle to the Jewish estimate of Christ. Jesus appeared in the flesh. It wasn't just that he appeared in the flesh as a human being, but no, it was in a way that he was not only one of us, but a very lowly one of us. He appeared in a state of humiliation. He was oppressed and he was persecuted and he was crucified and went out in the most despicable way that the Romans could send anybody out of this life. So, Jesus, as their Messiah, violated Jewish pride. 
the very idea that their Messiah appeared as one so lowly as Jesus, and suffered the indignities of the Romans as he did well, this just shattered their paradigm of the kind of Messiah they wanted and expected. So it nagged at them. So here, starting in chapter 2, verse 5, in the rest of this chapter, our writer goes to pains to show that the incarnation and the humiliation of the Messiah, it was all part of the ingenious scheme of divine redemption. He shows that it was anticipated in their own scriptures. He shows that his participation in our humanity and his ignominious sufferings, they were a necessary part of the divine program to elevate man above the angels. So, instead of being humiliated and scandalized and embarrassed by the incarnation and the humiliation of the Messiah, they ought to marvel at the grace of God. They ought to celebrate his humanity. They ought to celebrate his sufferings, for those sufferings qualified him to be our Redeemer and our sympathetic high priest. Well, that's the thrust of the rest of chapter 2. So we go back to verse 5 after the warning passage. For God did not subject to the angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man? Actually, it is man to whom God has subjected the world to come. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, let me explain. The author here continues his earlier point. The point is that Jesus is a personage vastly superior to angelic beings, but now from a different angle. What he wants to show now is that there's nothing against that premise, that is, the superiority of Jesus Christ, nothing against that in his incarnation, that is, appearing to us clothed in humanity and lowly humanity at that. The lowly humanity of Christ, which we refer to in theology as his humiliation, vis-a-vis -vis his exaltation now in heaven, the author is saying, folks, that does not argue in any way for his inferiority to angels. As the writer goes on to show, his humanity and his humiliation, far from being an embarrassment to the writer's affirmation of the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ to angels, he says that if you understand it correctly, it's all part of the amazement of the divine scheme of salvation. This turn in his logic shows implicitly that for the Jews, the humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ was an obstacle. And for some whom the author addresses, this aspect of Jesus Christ was a sensitive and vulnerable link in their chain of faith. So what the author attempts to do from chapter 2, verse 5, to the end of the chapter, what he attempts to do is seize upon that weak point, that is, to some of them, he attempts to explain it here in such a way that they, he hopes, will see Christ's humanity not as a point of embarrassment, but a point of pride and wonder. The humanity of our Lord, the lowly humanity of our Lord, is a fact that should not bother us, he will show. Actually, it should bolster us in our human dignity and hope. So to make his point, the author turns to the Old Testament, that quote that begins in verse 6. It comes from Psalm 8 verses 5 through 7, to be exact. Now, he is citing the Greek version of the text, what we call the Septuagint. The text says, What is man that you, God, are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? I mean, if I can paraphrase slightly. 
I mean, you've made man a little less than the angels. With glory and honor you've crowned him. You've subjected all things under his feet. It's amazing. On the basis of that passage, he shows that however mighty angelic beings might be in the terrestrial scheme of things, or whatever influence and power God may have assigned to angels, you know what? Actually, at the end of the day, God's plan, according to this psalm, is to exalt man above the angels. God's plan is to crown redeemed humanity with a transcendent glory and honor that belies man's present relative littleness and weakness. Somebody said, but I don't get what that has to do with Jesus. Hang on. If we should observe that this prophecy so far seems to be a blank bullet, well, never fear. For that prophecy, while it includes all redeemed humanity, this prophecy here from Psalm 8, it refers first and foremost to the leading man. That is, it refers to the new Adam of the new humanity. In Christ, this prophecy has already been fulfilled. As with the resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, is the pledge and guarantee of our own. In the exaltation of Christ, the Son of Man par excellence, we see the future glory and dignity of all of us in Him. We see the consummation of our salvation, and God's lifting us up from the pit to the pinnacle of glory and honor in the cosmic order. As His brethren, we who have trusted in Him will eventually reign with Him. You see, here's the idea he's getting across. Don't, don't shudder and be ashamed at the lowly humanity of Jesus. This is all part of God's plan. God plans to lift man above the angels in glory. Hasn't happened yet, but we see the first man. We see the second Adam. We see the Son of Man par excellence, already exalted after his humiliation, lifted up. Jesus is the representative of our race. Jesus is the one in whom God and man are perfectly and mysteriously united. Jesus has led the way to glory before us. The writer's telling these Hebrew Christians, so don't blush at his humanity. All of this is part of God's wondrous plan. It's a part of his plan to reinstate the human race in its primeval dignity. And then some. At first, God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. In the end, in Christ... God the Father will subject all things under the feet of the Son of Man, the Christ, and the company of his redeemed humanity. So again, don't blush at the humiliation of Christ. For in the scheme of divine redemption, that humiliation of our Savior was just the first station on his way to exaltation above all principalities and powers. It was all a necessary part of God's ingenious scheme of salvation. So not to angels did he subject the coming world concerning which we are speaking when we talk about this so great salvation, to confirm his point that the future world would not be subject to a rulership of angels, but that this dignity and honor, according to the Old Testament scriptures, would be ironically reserved for man, the lowest on the totem pole of God's rational creatures. The psalmist wonders that God should care so much for man, man so small in his sight. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you visit him? By the way, that's the exact posture becoming to us humans before an awesome transcendent God. 
Too much of the time the proud human attitude of man in distress is, What is God that he seems not to remember me or visit me on demand? We get too big for our britches, don't we? In verse 7 the psalmist continues, You, God, you've made man a little less than the angels. Now there's something here we need to explain. The Hebrew text, as opposed to the Greek text, says, Elohim, you, God, have made him a little less than Elohim. Elohim is a plural noun in Hebrew. It's a generic name for God or gods. But get this, occasionally the plural noun Elohim, translated here in English angels, can be rendered mighty ones. Mighty ones can refer to those who exercise godlike functions or dominions, such as angels. So the Hebrew text, one can say, is a bit ambiguous in the intent of the psalmist. You have made him a little less than Elohim. Does he mean mighty ones, or does he mean God? The ancient Greek of the Old Testament settled upon angels as the proper rendering of Elohim in this particular context. Were they right? Well, the fact that a New Testament author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, adopted the Septuagint, or Greek rendering, is decisive. If we accept the doctrine of inerrancy, as the Christian church historically has, then we know this meaning was the intent of the Spirit. No more needs to be said. Now, still in verse 7, you, God, have made him a little less than angels. A little less in Greek, and remember, he's quoting the Greek version, can also mean for a short time. In other words, you could go either way. That would make good sense. It's very tempting. However, in this instance, the original Hebrew is unambiguous and is decisive in favor of a qualitative rather than a temporal sense. Temporal sense would be for a short time. Qualitative translation would be, as we have here, you, God, have made him, man, a little less than the angels. Now, pardon me if I seem suddenly to have gone in a gratuitously technical mode. I avoid that as much as possible. In this case, however, something important is at stake. If you go back to your English versions in Psalm 8, you're going to run into square pegs and round holes, what we call cognitive dissonance. I mean, you're going to ask, how come the Bible does not agree with itself? How come your English translations say God, back in Psalm 8, and the author of Hebrews says angels? Well, now you know the reason. It's because Elohim can mean either one. Context has to tell you. The psalmist marvels that God has crowned insignificant man with celestial glory and universal honor. Not only that, but as the psalmist looks down the ages through his prophetic telescope, he sees an even more startling elevation of man. Of course, I must emphasize the primary references to the Son of Man, capital S, capital M. Secondarily, the references to those of us sons of man who are also children of God. At the end of the day, so to speak, the psalmist, a prophet, he sees man high and lifted up above every created being and work that is under God. Don't sneeze at the humanity of our Savior. Don't get embarrassed about it. Man has a glorious future.
Thou hast appointed him over the works of thy hands, God has. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. What a vision of the future of redeemed humanity. This vision is not one spawned by vain, utopian visions of a proud and perverted race. Rather, this vision is infused into the mind of the ancient prophet by the Holy Spirit. This is a vision of ruling and reigning with Christ, the Son of Man par excellence, the head of the new humanity. The scope of this dominion appointed him over the works of thy hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. This is no hyperbole. This is no literary exaggeration for effect. We're to take his words literally. The author now stresses the factuality of the point. For in subjecting all things to him, as the psalmist has said, God left nothing that is not subject to him, except obviously God himself, who decreed for redeemed humanity this future dominion over all things. The scope of man's future dominion does not exclude the angelic order of creation. Man will be, in the end, superior to angels. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we, the church, will one day be entrusted with judging or ruling angels. That's just another way of saying that God's plan is for us to precede them in rank and rule in the order of beings. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. So come back to the leading edge of his argument. The humanity of Christ is no argument in favor of Christ's inferiority to angels. And his flesh, his humanity, should in no way embarrass our exalted estimate of him. All of this was anticipated in the Old Testament. Psalm 8. At the present time, this elevation of redeemed humanity, it has not happened. Present experience, as William Lane says, seems to mock the vision that is recorded here. Here we all are, we humans, still mired in the scandal of sinful weakness and physical mortality. But that's not the whole story by any stretch, the author is emphasizing. In fact, this divine decree has already seen its first fulfillment. It's seen it in the case of Jesus. Jesus is his primary referent with a capital R. His exaltation is the precursor and the pledge and the surety of our own. But we see him, Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus because of the suffering of death. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We see him with the eyes of faith. We see through revelation. We see that by the grace of God, he came that he might test death for everyone. Before we discuss this verse further as to its meaning, let me apply what we know so far. My oldest daughter, Christy, back in the 1990s, used to work as a teacher in the juvenile correctional institutions here in Oregon. In general, she noted a major difference in the way kids in and out of the prison system thought, quite different from the way regular kids think with regard to the future. The kids always in trouble in and out of the clink, Christy observed, are totally absorbed in survival in the moment. They're retarded, as it were, in their capacity to look beyond today maybe even the next hour. They have little ability to think of the future of the consequences of their choices and actions. So they tend to live ruthlessly and relentlessly in the now. Their buttons are stuck on today. On the other hand, regular kids, while often short-sighted themselves, the point is they can be more readily induced to look ahead to see the future and its potentialities and plan for it. 
Well, that phenomenon is a fairly apt analogy of the difference between the mentality of mature Christian and others who have yet to get it. The average person, including mature Christians, lives too much in the moment. They're too invested in the now, just trying to survive the rough and tumble of life, trying to find happiness, trying to realize little dreams and ambitions that are all going straight to hell anyway. They live as if this is all there is, and we have to get our share now, or our lives have been wasted. Ah, if we could only lock on to the prophet's vision of the future. Folks, here is not where it is for us. Let's not put our eggs in this basket. No evolutionary or revolutionary vision of the future of man ever had the scope and scale of what God has in store for us. The future belongs to us. Let's not live so desperately or frantically here. Let's not get overly invested in this world. Being behind in the race of life down here is like a championship team being down to a bunch of losers three points at halftime. For champions, such a differential is so minuscule as to be virtually irrelevant. We will prevail in the end. That's the way it is with us followers of Jesus Christ. In the end, we win, and we win big. And along the way, we have God's provision and help. So let's take what God gives us in this life. Let's use it thankfully. Let's endure what he puts on us, accept it humbly. Let's anticipate what he has in store for us and follow him relentlessly and recklessly. Let's write this world off as a loss. We're on the Titanic, folks. This thing is going down. So let's lock onto the future where our life is hid with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. His present, the Son of Man, his exalted humanity foreshadows our own future. Our future's not here. Let's not live like it is. Sit loose in the saddle of the moment and ride like all get-out for the future. What is it we see through the lens of faith? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. We see him crowned with glory and honor. Say, for example, my family is destitute and insignificant. But for some reason, a rich patron took interest in all the children. He promised to provide for their education and then set them up in a lucrative business. Our eldest son is ten years older than the oldest of the next two. True to his word, the wealthy family friend funds an elite education for the oldest son and has him set up as promised in a great business. Well, the younger children are still poor. They're socially insignificant. Their situation in life, as it stands, does not look very promising. But they're buoyed in their low estate by the promise and faithfulness of their rich patron. Someone asks them why they wear their rags with such self-assurance. Well, they just tell them about their wealthy friend and his standing promise. If anyone should say who to that, they just say, well, for your information, we now see our oldest brother finally educated and ensconced as the CEO position of a significant business enterprise. That's all the assurance we need that our future is bright and secure. Well, that's the logic here, too. The exaltation of the Lord Jesus foreshadows our own. It testifies to God's faithfulness to his decree. For that psalm, Psalm 8, while it spoke of him preeminently, it also speaks to the future glory of all redeemed in him secondarily. Thus far, the author has shown us from the Old Testament the prophetic anticipation of the incarnation of the Son of Man. He's shown us the glorious implications of his exaltation in his family. So truly, his abasement is no cause for embarrassment but wonderment. 
No need to apologize. It is truly something to eulogize. And in that vein, he shifts his focus now from prophecy to its expediency in the divine redemptive scheme. We'll pick up there next time. God bless you and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Be sure the word. Be sure the word. Just be sure the word gets in the hand.